We have been uh, going through Advent, and uh, we had the third Sunday in Advent, which is joy, and then we have one more Sunday, which will also be our our Christmas celebration, so that's a little bit of conflating things, putting them together, but we're going to soldier on on that. There's been a theme that I've been uh, trying to develop these last uh, two Sundays, and then I want to continue it on this Sunday as well, and it's basically the details of Jesus' birth. We only get all the details of Jesus' birth in two places. That's it. It's uh, Matthew 2 and Luke 2. The only places you're going to find anything about Jesus' birth. And actually, you get nothing in Matthew 2 about Jesus' birth. You get the story of the Magi. And then in Luke 2, you get the story of Jesus' birth, but not the Magi. So it's very selective stuff going on here. But at least we have those two birth narratives. And we've been talking about that, but we've been taking more of a, a deeper spiritual approach as we look at this, as we always do. And it's like, okay, we're looking at the details of Jesus' birth, but not just so that we can rehearse something from 2,000 years ago. But what is it that's going on in those stories that is relevant to us right now today? And what I've been trying to develop is this, this concept or this idea of recognizing Jesus as he really is. Because he doesn't present the way that we imagine. He didn't present, I'm sure, the way the Magi imagined when they traveled as long as they traveled over a thousand miles at least to visit the king, the newborn king. And each one of us goes through the same process of trying to recognize our God because God doesn't present the way that we think he should present. He doesn't present the way the church often depicts him. Right? So what is it that prepared the Magi, prepared the shepherds, prepared Mary and Joseph for the news that they got? prepared anyone who encounters Jesus throughout his entire life and throughout our entire lives to be able to accept him as he really is and not as we imagine him to be, should be, want him to be, recreated in our own image perhaps, or in the image of what we admire in our culture, to really see Jesus as he is. This is what we've been trying to look at as perhaps the true meaning of Christmas. What is Christmas if not this ability to see beyond surface appearances, to see the value, the worth, and the truth in things that come from radically different directions than we have expected? And so today I want to continue that, and I want to talk about the Magi again, but focusing more on the star this time. You know, I've always been fascinated by the star of Bethlehem. You know, I've been an uh, astronomy geek my entire life, holed up in my room before there was internet with golden book encyclopedias. Do you guys remember those things? Yeah, those golden books and, and the other encyclopedias drawing maps of the solar system and the stars. And So the star of Bethlehem was really a source of fascination for me. And I told, I think last week, the story of me when I was really small, looking out my back window, probably looking for Santa Claus on Christmas night. And there was a very bright star just over the horizon. And going through the screen, it played out bands of light that were cross-shaped with a star right in the middle, just like every Christmas card I'd ever seen in my life. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm seeing the star. You know, I was so excited about that. And the star has just held this fascination, but what the heck is it? I mean, this has been confounding the church and confounding astronomers and confounding everybody for 2,000 years. Nobody knows what the star is. And we only have this little bit for Matthew 2 to give us any evidence to try to figure it out. So that's what I think I want to do. Let's read Matthew 2, and then let's act like forensic detectives. 
sifting through the clues to see what we can figure out about what this star really was, and then beyond that, what's the significance? Because if it doesn't have any significance and relevance right now, right here, then what are we doing? So, Matthew 2, right at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. For obvious reasons, right? Who's this king? I'm king. Gathering together all of his chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, and this is quoting Micah the prophet, in Bethlehem of Judea. But this is what has been written by the prophet. You and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. My, what big teeth you have, right? After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. There's a great song by James Taylor. Have you heard it? Home by another way? Yeah? Got to go home by another way. Home by another way. Maybe me and you can be wise guys too and go home by another way. I love that song. Played it once or twice. I have to pull that one out of the mothballs sometime because that's just like... You can't be depressed and listen to James Taylor at the same time, I'm convinced. So any chance I get. All right, so what are the clues? I count five really significant clues that we need to look at if we're going to try to figure this thing out. Now, the first two have to do more with Jesus, and the last three have to do with the star. But let's take a look at them. Uh, I said one looks, one's looking at Jesus, one's looking at the Magi. So first of all, look at your, your text there. First sentence, Jesus was born in the days of Herod. All right? Simple declarative sentence. Do you all know when Jesus was born? What's the date of Jesus' birth? What's Jesus' birthday? Zero. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> Four BC? No, you guys are giving me the year. What's the day? What's the date? What's his birthday? Month and, and day? December 25th? Any other takers? June 14th? Is that what you said? It could be, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Here's the thing. We have no idea. How's that for an answer for you? We have no idea. We're probably pretty sure it's not 1225. It's not December 25th, most likely. And most scholars just using internal evidence and what they know about the culture and whatnot, they think that Jesus was probably born in the spring. So my daughter is right on there. So where in the heck did we get this 1225 from? Well, 1225, December 25th, was adopted after the 4th century. This is after Christianity had become the state religion of the Roman Empire. 
And one of the emperors decreed at the end of the 4th century, around 380-something or into the, the turn of the century, decreed that December 25th was going to be celebrated as Christmas. Of course, this is when they're going through the process of converting everything pagan into Christianity. So all the temples became churches, all the priests had to convert, or they had to be exiled or killed or lose their land and their properties, whatever, you know, hard choice there, right? And so all of this conversion was taking place at this time. But what is it about 1225 that is so significant even to the Romans? Well, the first thing is, is that December 21st is the winter solstice. And we're just about there right now. So have you been noticing how little daylight we really have? You know, so you got the equinoxes and you got the solstice. In the equinoxes, there's 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark. All right? But then from March to June, things are getting longer. And so the days are getting longer and the nights are getting shorter. Here at this latitude, it's about a four-hour swing. So at the summer solstice in June, then we got really 16 hours of light and only eight hours of night. I always get that messed up. So 16 hours a day and eight hours of night. Moving into December, it's just the opposite. You've noticed, man, it's dark by 5 o'clock now. We have 16 hours of dark and only 8 hours of light. So that's the swing that's going on. So if you imagine the ancient peoples, they're watching the sun rising, rising higher in the sky with each noontime up until June, and then it starts dropping again until it's barely, in some latitudes, crossing the, the horizon. Or if you're far enough north or south, then it's always dark and it's always light, land of the midnight sun, right? So that's kind of scary for ancient peoples, just watching, is the sun dying? Is it ever going to come back? And then the summer solstice hit, which literally means sun stands. That's what solstice means in Latin. The sun stops and stands in place and then starts going back up higher again until it hits June and the cycle repeats. So that solstice was their understanding of the sun dying and coming back to life. That was the rebirth of the sun at the solstice. There was a... a, a, um, a celebration called Saturnalia that the Roman Empire um, celebrated. And it was like uh, December 17th to the 23rd or 24th or something like that. It included the solstice. And this is a week-long celebration. It included gift-giving and merrymaking and decorating houses and trees. Sound a little bit familiar? All right? In 274, the Emperor Aurelian, who um, in the later Roman Empire had replaced Sol, the actual sun as the god kind of replaced Apollo, who was also a sun god. And he established December 25th as the day, and they called it Dias Natale Sol Invictus, which is uh, the birth of the unconquerable sun. That was the actual holiday from 274 on uh, in the Roman Empire was the birth of the sun god, the rebirth of the sun god. Well, then when the Christian emperors come along, they simply place uh, Christmas right over this Dies Natalis. And so, does that mean that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means that we've got 364 other days that he could have been born as well. We just don't really know. Now, to, to go back to where you were headed, what year was he born? Well, Frank says zero. You said what? 4 BC. Okay. What happened in 512, 524 or so is that um, 
The Roman Empire used a completely different dating system. We really don't think about that. But uh, Pope John I commissioned Dionysus Exegus, which means Dennis the Little. He was a Syrian monk, to calculate the Easter tables. Because Easter is always jumping around, and so it's a really difficult calculation. And he got him to, to do that. And Dennis threw in, just you know, for free, the fact that he really hated that the Romans and the church were using the emperor's as their dating system. In other words, the way the Roman Empire dated its dates, there was one dating system from the inception of the city, but they really didn't use that date today. They just named who their leaders were. Okay, this was the year of the two consuls, blah and blah. Or after the empire started in 27, then it was in the reign of the year of the reign of whichever emperor. But from the mid-3rd century on, Diocletian dating took over. And so Diocletian, who was the last real persecutor of the church, was the way that the church was actually dating everything to the inception or the start date of Diocletian's reign. And Dennis the Little thought that was horrible. So he said, we should be dating everything to the birth of our Savior. So he figured, did his calculations, and figured that Jesus was born on 753 AUC, which is the Roman dating system from the inception of the city. But now we know he got it wrong. Why? Because right here it says, Jesus was born in the days of Herod. When did Herod die? 4 BC. So Jesus couldn't have been born later than 4 BC if he was born in the days of Herod. But we also know that he was born toward the end of Herod's reign because of the way that the gospel narrative reads. So the most probable dates for Jesus' birth would be between 5 and 7 BCE. So somewhere in there is probably the, the, where he came from or, or for where he was born. But again, we really don't know. But this date range from 5 to 7 is going to be really important to our star's identity. So just kind of hold that in your mind for a second. What's the next clue we got? We've got magi from the east. Okay? Magos, uh, the word there in, in Greek, it means, uh, it, you know, it was an astronomer, an astrologer, a philosopher, a wise man. These were very powerful regents, co-regents. They, they, they were advisors to the king. They advised the king and they helped him rule. We've talked about, we talked about, I think, two weeks ago that Daniel of the Bible, the, the prophet Daniel, was probably a magi when he was exiled into the Persian Empire. And that role that he played, if you read the book of Daniel, as an advisor to the king, a very powerful and important person in the, in the kingdom, in the empire, was the position that these magi held. All right, They were astronomers and also astrologers. I should probably say a word about astrology. How many of your skin crawls and the hair stand up on the back of the neck when I say astrology in church? Okay, got one who's honest here. Anybody else? See, astrology has gotten such a bad rap and it has been used by the church by saying it's a cult, it's evil, it's of the devil, and all of these things. Um, astrology, as we know it, developed from the later Greeks who created the horoscope, which was designed for individual prognostication, individual fortune-telling, or if you want. But in antiquity, astrology and astronomy were, were identical. You really couldn't separate the two. And even though the astronomers who were also astrologers, it just meant that they were interpreting what they saw in the stars, but not for individual fortune-telling. They believed that the stars, and Genesis says this, let the signs, the stars and the lights in the sky be for signs and seasons. They believed that the, the movement of the stars 
mirrored macro events, the movements of kings and armies and nations. And so they could start to see, and they would use this to be able to advise the king. The signs were good for this campaign or this or whatever it was you ought to do. So it's a different kind of thing. The main thing that you need to know is that astrology is all throughout the scriptures. The zodiac is the Matzorah in, in, uh, in Hebrew, and it appears throughout the Old Testament. And there are allusions to the zodiac and allusions to astronomy in the New Testament as well. You know, anything can be used badly. Anything can be used to take our eyes off the Lord. But there is a place for astrology and at least the practice of it in antiquity that is also registered in the Bible. So these magi were astronomers, but they're also astrologers. So they're, they are interpreting the scriptures, or interpreting what they see in the skies. Now, the third clue is that they see a star in the east. All right? Now, first of all, you've got to know that also in antiquity, all the lights in the sky were called stars except the sun and the moon. So any light that you saw, whether it was a planet, a comet, a meteor, uh, a star, they were all called stars. So there's no distinctions made between the two. However, they knew that some of the stars wandered. <laughs> so you, really quick, I, I know I'm getting into geek land here, and I love it so, and I'm so sorry, but you need just a little bit of background. In the span of one human lifetime, the stars appeared, appear fixed. They do not move. The, the, the Big Dipper is the Big Dipper, and it's been the Big Dipper for thousands of years, and it looks like it's fixed. Now, in truth, yes, the stars are also moving, and in 10,000 or 100,000 years, yeah, maybe the Big Dipper will be all distorted. And look, but for right now, the, the stars look fixed. But the planets move back and forth among them. And the actual word for planet, planetus in Greek, means wanderer. And so the ancients realized that some stars wandered. <laughs> now, they all wander from east to west, and then they move and they do other things, and they move through the ecliptic and all this and that. But at least just know this. They're going to call everything a star, even though they realize that some wander against the backdrop of the fixed stars. Hold that in your thoughts for a second. We're gathering evidence here, okay? This is another important detail for the possible identity of our, of our uh, star of Bethlehem. Now, the question is, why did they say twice that they saw the star in the east? They were in the east, but they needed to go west to Jerusalem, and then they needed to go south to Bethlehem. But both times they talk about seeing a star in the east. How does a star in the east get you west and get you south? Hold on to that thought for a second. Okay, fourth clue. Herod asked the exact time that the star appeared. Why hadn't Herod seen the star? He had wise men too, you know. They weren't the only He had his seers and his augurs and all of that. Why hadn't they seen the star in the sky? If it was that big and that spectacular and, and drew the wise men over a thousand miles across the frontier of Parthia and, and Rome, why had they not seen it? You know? Okay, hold that thought for a second. Last clue. You're holding all this stuff. It's all cataloged in your mind. Yeah? The star went before the Magi, especially saying it went before from Jerusalem south to Bethlehem. It's only a distance about five miles. But it went before, and then it stood over. Now that really blows your mind. How does a star go before you and then stand over the place that the child was? How in the world 
can we say any star could actually do this? All right? Are you ready for some answers? You're probably really ready for some answers. Please, yes. Is there anything, is there anything that could fit all of these clues that are given to us in Matthew 2? Well, obviously the church has said for, for millennia that it was a miracle. Now, as soon as you say it's a miracle, well, then all bets are off, and, and God can do whatever he wants to do, of course, and he could make this star do exactly what Matthew says it did. But is there another way that we can look at this without just going to a miracle? And perhaps. Scholars have suggested many things. They said, well, maybe it was a comet. Maybe it was a meteor. Maybe it was a supernova, you know, when a star explodes and gets really, really bright, and then it goes back down again. Maybe it was one of those. And so they've gone through, oh, maybe it's a conjunction of planets, just several planets conjunct, and then, you know, just lining up, and then they appear brighter for a period of time. But think about it. Anything that would be that spectacular in the night sky, Herod would have seen it. He wouldn't have had to ask the Magi about it. When was it the exact time this thing arose? Why hadn't he seen it if that was the case? And the other thing is, there is no way any one of those type of phenomena, natural phenomena in the sky, is going to do what this star did. That it's going to go before the Magi and it's going to stand over the place that Jesus was born. So, is there anything that we can look to? Actually, there is. But we're going to have to turn to astrology for a second. So, Jewel, hang on there with me, okay? (laughs) We're going to have to look at the astrological significance of what's going on. Because the words here that are used in Matthew in the Greek are very specific. First of all, when the Magi say they saw the star in the east, and they say it twice, the the phrase that they're using is ente anatole, ente anatole, which literally means in its rising. So that's been translated into English in the East because things rise in the East, but literally means in its rising. And this is the specific astronomical term that the Greeks used for a heliacal rising. Okay, here we go again. What's a heliacal rising? You know that we are in an inner orbit and we've got a lot of planets that are outside of us and the sun's in the center. So when we're looking at planets and we're looking at stars... The planets will go behind the sun and then come back out again. Some planets will go behind the moon and back out again. Some planets will go line up with each other. So, you know, it's like cars doing laps around a a track, and they're lapping each other. Some are going faster. The inner planets go faster. The outer planets go slower, and things are going in and around and behind each other. When a planet goes behind the sun, you won't see it for several months. And then all of a sudden, just before the sun rises... You will see the planet come up over the the horizon for just a brief time, and then the sun rises and blows it away, right? And so that's the heliacal rising. When it just it shows for just a second, that's very significant in astrological thought. When a planet finally appears out from behind the sun for the first time, that date is very significant. Right? And then it goes back down again. This is the exact words that Matthew used to describe what the Magi were saying. They were saying, we, we saw the star in its heliacal rising. We saw it in the east at its rising against the backdrop of the fixed stars. Second one, to go before. Once a planet rises back out of behind the sun, then it is seen to continue to wander. And it's going to wander east or it's going to wander west. 
with relationship to the, the fixed stars behind them. And so this wandering back and forth is the going before, giving directionality to which way the star is going. And then finally, to stand over. The word there in Greek is apano. This is another astronomical term. And it, it relates to apparent retrograde. Have you ever just passed a car on the freeway? I know you passed a car on the freeway. Of course you passed a car on the freeway. What does it look like? You're tooling along in the left-hand lane. There's a car in the next lane to the right, and you're watching it. And it's going forward, but as you pick up speed, it slows down, and then you get right up against it, and it seems to stand still for a second, and then it starts to go backward. Right? That's the apparent motion of passing. Same thing happens with the Earth and another star. When the Earth on the inside orbit passes another planet, all right, it's going to be going one direction, it's going to slow down and stop, and then it's going to look like it's going backwards. That's apparent retrograde. That's epano, the word that they use there. Okay? You put all this together. Is there any phenomenon in the right time frame? Remember, Jesus was, had to have been born somewhere between 5 and 7 BCE. That will account for all of these clues. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> First of all, how do we know? How could we possibly know what happened 2,000 years ago? Do you know that the universe and the solar system is like a gigantic clock? It's a clockwork. It, it is so accurate that we set our watches by it. I mean, all of our time, we only know the passage of time because of the movements of the planets and the sun and the stars. That's the only way we have any idea of passage of time and light and dark. It's a clockwork. What has happened now in the computer age is that these star maps have been fed into these computers and they can run them back and forward just as accurately as if you were there. And they can run the star maps back to 2,000 years ago and know exactly what was happening in the solar system and exactly what was going on. And what did they find? They found that on April 17th in 6 BCE, Jupiter had a heliacal rising. Jupiter is associated with the king, of course, right? Jupiter is also associated... Uh, and then, okay, so it, it rises from, from the, behind the sun into the constellation of Leo, which is one of the zodiac constellations, which is also associated with the king and is also associated with Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Leo the lion, lion of the tribe of Judah. So you've got the king planet rising into Leo at the, at, is understood as also the king and also associated with Israel. That's right at dawn. By noon of the same day, the, the planet Jupiter is occulted. Now that's going to get you all weird again. All that means is it was eclipsed by, it was blocked by the moon. So the moon went, and that was in the constellation of Aries. Aries, the lamb, also associated with Israel. Now, that doesn't sound like a whole heck of a lot, but to an astronomer and possibly a Jewish descendant who has been looking not just through his own lifetime, but probably for generations, been looking for the sign of the king, this is absolutely astounding for them to see this combination of events. And it doesn't end there. It was an eighth-month-long phenomenon. It started on April 17th, and it ended on December 19th when Jupiter went retrograde. All right? Think about this for just a second. 
They have been looking for possibly hundreds of years for the sign of a king of their tribes, of, of Judah, uh, the lost tribes uh, that were exiled into Babylon and into Persia. They see this sign. They start packing their bags. They realize they know where to go. They know that they need to go to Israel, and they know that they need to go to Judah, which means Jerusalem, which was the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. They know that much. They know to go there. So they pack their bags, and they head off. Camels walking over 1,000 miles, maybe 1,500 miles across the Parthian Roman frontier. Very dangerous journey. It can easily take them eight months to get there. So they arrive in December. All they know to do is to go to Jerusalem. They go to the king. They figure the king's got to know. And they get instructions to go to Bethlehem. They head south for the last five miles of their journey to go to Bethlehem. The star is still going before them. That means it's still going west because that was their journey. And then it stops and it stands and it starts going back east again, signifying the end of their journey. They are here. This is, I don't know what this does to you, if it does anything to you. You know, to me, it makes the Bible so much more real, accessible. You know, yes, it would be easy to say God can do anything. And Dave, did you really have to go through all this junk to get me to the same place that God could have got me with a miracle? No, I didn't. But. To me, this just brings the majesty, the beauty, and the reality of the scriptures home. And it brings the reality of what was going on. These were flesh and blood real people. These magi waiting all these years to see what they saw, to be motivated to do what they did, and prepared to be able to accept what they saw when they got there. That is a real person. We don't have to go out into the realm of, of, of miracle to realize these are flesh and blood people doing what they do and doing the best they can and exceedingly, in a faithful way, finding their God, meeting their God, which means that I can do it too. That's why I get so excited about this stuff. <laughs> Is it true? I have no idea. It doesn't really matter so much unless it helps you on your faith walk. But it's the only natural explanation that fits all the clues and all the details that Matthew gives us. But more importantly, let's start moving now. What really guided the Magi? What really motivated them? Yes, there was the astrological significance, the astronomical significance. But what also was going on? Because guess what? They weren't the only three wise men. If there were three, we don't know that for sure. They weren't the only wise men in town. There were others who saw this same thing in the sky and it didn't motivate them to take a thousand-mile journey. What was it about these wise men? I have the sneaking suspicion that they were Jewish descendants. Can't prove it. Don't hold me to it. But I think that they were. They were the descendants of Daniel. They were the descendants of those who stayed because only some of the Jews went back to the homeland when they could. The rest stayed and created their their own culture and subculture within the empire. And I think that they were looking for that prophecy of Micah to, to be fulfilled all these years. It's a beautiful thought. But what is it about them? These Eastern, either Jews or Gentiles, from a different culture, perhaps even a different faith, that were longing for truth so much 
that they could find it in an unexpected place and an unexpected person. Because if you think about it, really, Christmas is the story of the improbable. Christmas is the story of the nearly impossible. If you really want to put it, if we're not prepared, we will miss it. We will miss the significance of what Christmas really is if we're not prepared to see beyond what we normally see. What desire did these magi have that was so strong? How did they get that desire? You know? How do we become wise guys too? That's probably the better question. And I think Jesus and the magi are showing us in this story and also in Jesus' teaching. Remember when Jesus said, Ask, seek, and knock? Ask and you will find, seek and it will be shown to you, knock and it will be opened to you. That three-part saying of his is really a three-part journey. It's a three-part way of living life. And I think that it lines up with what the Magi are doing as well. To ask in Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, is salu, which is not just a casual asking. It's like a police interrogation. It's a real leaning in. It's a real grilling. It's, it's really akin to this deep, deep desire that you just have to know. Think about it. It really is represented by the star. The star represents the desire. The star is that longing. The star is that desire to, to want to know God as much as you possibly can. We all have that longing. You're all here. So you must have that longing. But the longing is probably stronger in some of us than in others. We were reading the, uh, the prophet on, uh, on Wednesday night, and there was this little passage here, and I, it just popped into my head. And he says, In your longing for your true self lies your goodness, and that longing is in all of you. But in some of you, that longing is a torrent rushing with might to the sea, carrying the secrets of the hillsides and the songs of the forest. And in others, it's a flat stream that loses itself in angles and bends and lingers before it reaches the shore. Isn't that the way it is with all of us? What is the level of your longing? What is the... The, the temperature of your desire, I guess I could say. Does it really draw you into different types of behavior? Does it draw you into a journey? Is it something that you just got to know? You just got to have? Or is it a flat stream that kind of meanders and moves through? You know, we all have the longing. We all have the homing device built in. But for reasons unknown, some of us just have a stronger signal maybe. Or maybe we just haven't developed the signal strong enough. But when the desire is strong enough, when the pull, the longing to know God is strong enough, it pulls you into the next, which is to seek be'ah in Aramaic. And this is a, a searching from inside to outside, literally in the Aramaic, in the, in the roots and the understanding. It is a diligent search. And it is the journey. So the desire, the asking is the star, and the journey, the seeking, is the action that must be taken. If we don't set out, it doesn't really matter how great our desire is. We can have the greatest longing in the world, but if it doesn't cause us to act, to do something different, 
to go someplace we've never been to before, to see if we can find something we've never found before, then it's not going to make any difference. It's the action. It's the perseverance in action that literally is the definition of biblical faith. Biblical faith is not what we think, it's what we do. If our desire is great enough, it pulls us into action and we'll actually pack our bags and take that thousand-mile journey if that's what we got to do to find that for which we seek. And then there is the knock, kosh in, in Aramaic, which literally means to nail in a tent peg or to strike a musical note. Kind of strange. But it means to create a space that is real. It means to create a sound that can be heard by everyone in the room. It is to manifest, to make it real. That's what the knocking is all about. In Magi vocabulary, it's the gifts that they give. The gifts are the reality of their submission. That's where we're going. The desire takes us to action, and action, when we find the truth, if we're willing, and submit, shows us the truth that we have never seen before. In a place maybe we never expected it before. The gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, gold, lines up with desire, doesn't it? Frankincense was the incense that was burned at the altar, and the Jews understood that the prayers of the people went up like the smoke and were a sweet smell in God's nostrils. That idea of action, of movement, again, is the second piece. And then third, the myrrh was an ointment usually for the dead which is the symbol of our surrender. So once again, even in the three gifts of the Magi, the gold, the desire, the frankincense, the action, the myrrh, the surrender, the submission, we see the shape of this journey. How do we become wise guys too? How do we find a truth, the truth that Christmas is trying to show us that lies behind our expectations that we have to see through and past in order to really get it, to understand If you think about every single hero of faith that the scriptures show us, this same journey is there. Abraham, he wanted to know God. He wanted to know God so bad, he left the cushy existence in Mesopotamia and took his own thousand-mile journey that took him up to Haran in northern Syria and then down into Judea, even into Egypt and back again. He was searching all over for God. But he thought that God was going to be manifest in his life by a great nation that he was going to be fathered to. And so Isaac, his son, Yitzhak, was the embodiment, that miracle child was the embodiment of the promise and the hope of his knowing of God and God's promise, right? Until he was asked to surrender that very solid image of his hope. And when he did, when he let that go, he realized that the truth wasn't in a flesh and blood heritage or lineage or legacy, but it was in the faith of the people who would follow him that was the promise of God. Moses wanted to know God. He wanted to know God through the health of his own people. And that took him on a journey as a prince of Egypt, back into the backwater of the Midian, and then back again, and then practically forever plus, leading his people to the promised land. And he thought that he was going to know God through that land. And yet at Mount Nebo, he realizes he has to surrender that as well. Generations later, Solomon wants to know God, and he thinks he's going to find it through his wisdom. And he follows that, and it takes him on a journey where he builds up the kingdom of Israel like it's never been before or since. 
But at the end of his life, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he also realizes that all the wisdom in the world is not what he's been searching for, and he has to lay that down, surrender that, to really become a wise guy. And then there's the apostles following Jesus. They want to know God, but they want to know God through the flesh and blood man that he's their friend and their provider and their protector and the guy that they can follow around. And it takes them on a journey where they drop everything. They drop their nets. They drop their tax collector's receipts. They drop everything and follow him. But in the end, they have to surrender that man physically so that they can see the helper behind the man that is going to connect them with God in a way that they never expected. And then the Magi. They wanted to know God as king, as prophet, as priest, as the stars had told them. And they take their journey. And what do they get? A poor, speechless child. And they were prepared to be able to see the king, the prophet, the priest, in that most unlikely person. They were prepared for the journey. Are we prepared for the journey? Do we have the desire even to instigate the journey, to go someplace we've never gone before? When the Magi set out to find the king and the priest and the prophet, and they found this poor speechless child, it was as if the promise that they were given by the stars, by their God, was still unformed. It was not yet finished. It was still in an unrecognizable form. But they saw past their expectations and surrendered and trusted. When we set out to find our God, find out meaning and purpose and identity in life, right? That's what we often call it. Aren't we always also presented with the infant? Aren't we also presented with more questions than we are answers often? Aren't we presented with truth in an unrecognizable form that often we are just not ready to accept? And so we keep looking, we keep searching, rather than seeing where the planet goes retrograde, the star stops and stands over the place. Can we learn to see past the appearances? Can we learn to see truth in unexpected places? Do we have enough desire to impel us into this kind of journey. Christmas is the improbable promise of our star, the star of our own lives, when still unformed. Because our God is an unassuming God. And this is what Christmas is so trying to get across to us. Our God is an unassuming God, a humble God. There's this great line from James Thurber in The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I put it into you to your inserts there. Beautiful things don't ask for attention. Beautiful things don't ask for attention. God isn't going to ask for attention. He's not going to be jumping around and say, look, here I am. It is up to us when we see it to recognize it. Beautiful things are whole and complete in and of themselves. You know? They're already there. They need nothing to be more complete, but they give everything that they are and have to give if we can just look and see what is really there. Christmas reminds us that our ability to see real beauty, to see real truth, makes us beautiful too. Makes us true too, if we can do it. 
So how do we follow our star to this child of promise, this most unexpected child? I wanted to end by just reading you a journal entry that also popped into my head as I was prepping. And this was a Christmas several years ago. 5 a.m. Awakened with a thought I can't put down until I put it down. The house is dark, quiet. Phones are dark, quiet. Light rain falling outside. Christmas lights still burning on the house across the street. Paint-colored streaks across wet pavement. Christmas lights. Bright reminders that another year is shuffling off stage with yet another in the wings. The tree downstairs is dark, but we'll light it up and gather around in just three more days. I suppose the word breathless best describes the last few weeks run up to the three days before Christmas, and I'm left with unlikely Christmas images in the 5 a.m. darkness. Five nights ago, waiting at a stoplight, I have a front row seat at the crosswalk. Through the passenger window, I catch what must be a father and daughter beginning their walk across the intersection, moving very slowly. I wonder if they'll get across in time. Both carry cardboard coffee cups in their right hands. But while his free arm swings with each step, I notice hers held stiffly bent against her side. She appears 11 or 12 years old as I collect details. Left hand curled cruelly back at the wrist, left foot turned sharply inward, and the limping shuffle it creates, thick glasses and puffy features. It dawns why they move so slowly across my glass screen. Father matches her pace with a practiced grace, unhurried, vaguely protective, but not hovering either. They went to Starbucks. He bought her coffee, or maybe hot chocolate, amid all those lights and decorations. I wonder how it all appeared to her through those thick glasses. I wondered how it all appeared to him to be forced to walk slowly, to match that slow, shuffling pace for 11 or 12 years for the rest of her life or the rest of his. Perhaps to learn to see life as his daughter would always see it. A tragedy? A very great blessing? A blessing none of us would ever choose, but when chosen for us, immense if accepted? Christmas has a way of bringing vague, submerged things to the surface the way hook and line bring up fish. We find ourselves suddenly grasping, squirming emotions that should have nothing to do with Christmas, with what we think Christmas is supposed to mean, what we remember it used to mean. You see, we imprint the meaning of Christmas through a child's eyes and then mourn its loss each year through adult eyes. Christmas hasn't changed. The possibility of Christmas returns every December. We have changed. We've lost the pace of childhood. I'm thinking maybe Christmas, as remembered, happens exactly when we stop trying to make it happen. When we stop running faster and faster trying to catch the stored experience of childhood, new experience and meaning finally having a chance to catch up and catch us. It's light now, gray and wet outside. Christmas lights still burn across the street, but muted, casting no reflections. My house will wake soon. The phone will ring. This quiet moment will pass, is passing, like the eye of a storm. I can't choose the pace of life around me any more than I can alter the course of a storm, but maybe I can choose my own pace. Maybe I can allow myself to shuffle slowly through the crosswalk with a warm cardboard cup in my hand and the sense of a patient father at my side.
This is a father who can see past my own unformed promise the way that father could see past the unformed promise in his daughter. To recognize my beauty in spite of myself and all the things that I cover over, teaching me with his unfailing love to do the same everywhere I look, to see that love that he sees in me wherever I look. Of course, we will always find our God as a child. Why would we expect any other form? Every time we meet our God is Christmas morning. The babe is in the manger, and the star is in the east, and we are the magi. Wise guys, too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the deep, deep meaning that you can't help but impart everywhere you go because you're so deep. Help us to glean more of that. Help us to see deeper than we normally do. Stoke in us the desire to go deeper, to do something we've never done before so we can have an experience we've never had before, so we can know you like we've never known you before. And let this Christmas be the launching path. Let this Christmas be the beginning of a new leg of our journey. Create in us that clean heart and that desire, O Lord. Take us where you want us to go. Get us excited about the trip. And Father, thank you for loving us every step of the way and reminding us over and over again that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.